the Jews' Passover was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, the changes of money setting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, made a whip, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changes' money, overthrew the tables, and said to them that sold doves, Take these things away, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, the seed of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said to him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing you do these things? And Jesus answered was, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus, however, spake of the temple of his body. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell. I'm after your hearts, not your heads, is a refrain often heard by college students in Dr. Mitchell's Bible classes. In his own words, his goal was to help you fall in love with the Savior, and his teachings always tended to fill your mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also a pioneer radio speaker. He was heard live every weekday on radio stations in the Northwest. But by the grace of God, we can still benefit from the ministry and teaching of Dr. John G. Mitchell. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. The Unchanging Word is studying through the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. After showing his glory in Cana of Galilee, of transforming the water into wine, and spending a short time in Capernaum, we next see Jesus in Jerusalem in the temple. Now, in our study today, Dr. Mitchell makes the observation that the Passover of the Lord had degenerated into a commercial holiday, and Jesus demonstrated his authority and power, making a clean sweep of his father's house, driving out those who were selling animals for sacrifice, and people making merchandise of the things of God. Well, Jesus makes mention of his coming resurrection, which his disciples did not understand until after he was raised from the dead. You know, sometimes it takes time before we remember and believe God's Word, doesn't it? So let's turn in our Bible to John chapter 2, verse 13. Here's Dr. Mitchell. Today we come to you again, and I want to say, friend, it's a real joy for me again to be with you. I, I revel in the fact that we have a Savior who can meet the needs of every human heart. And when a person means business with God, God means business with them. And now we're dealing with the gospel through John, and we're in chapter 2. We have just been dealing with the first sign, the first miracle in John, which has to do with turning water into wine. In the first 12 verses where our Lord manifested his omnipotence, and you remember... The water was transformed into wine through obedience to his word. 
Mary gave some good advice when she said, whatever he says to you, you do. And the result was that these empty ceremonial pots, which were used for cleansing, and now are filled with water, transformed into wine, the best wine. And we rejoice in the fact that transformation comes through obedience. I'd like to emphasize that to those of you who are real Christians. You love the Savior. Your, your life will not be full of joy or peace or of usefulness apart from obedience to his word. This is what he asks of us. Obedience. You say, well, sacrifice, service, no friend. Obedience. Obedience because of fellowship with the Savior. And the manner, or shall I say, the measure of your love for the Savior is your obedience to his word. Please never forget John 14, 23, when he said, If a man love me, he will keep my word. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. That's the 21st verse of the same chapter. Obedience in this passage brought transformation. And when a person comes with their sin, just as they are, and obey the gospel, that is, they receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, there comes a transformation in their hearts and lives. You transform from sinners into saints, from children of wrath into children of God. You're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and you're put into the kingdom of God's blessed Son where love reigns, where each one has eternal life and is joined to God himself. Now, the rest of the chapter, chapter 2, starting in at verse 13 and running to the end of the chapter, we have our Lord cleansing the temple. And here he manifests his authority and power. In fact, he manifests his omniscience. And I'd like to read this, if I may, starting in at verse 13. You remember our Lord and his disciples and his mother and his brethren went down to Capernaum. And they stayed there. They left Cana of Galilee where the wedding was, and went down to Capernaum. This was his earthly home, by the way. And now let us read from verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, the changes of money setting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, made a whip, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the, cha the, the changes, money, overthrew the tables, and said to them that sold doves, Take these things away. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The seed of thine house hath eaten me up. Then asked the Jews, or answered the Jews, and said to him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing you do these things? In other words, where in the world do you get your authority to do what you're doing. And Jesus' answer was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, forty and six years was this temple in building, and will you raise it up in three days? Jesus, however, spake of the temple of his body. And you go on where the disciples remember this after he was raised again from the dead. Let me just stop here uh, for a few moments. Notice, please, it was the Passover time, and it's called a Jewish feast. Here again, you have declension. It was, if you go to back to your Old Testament, it's God's Passover. Take Exodus chapter 12, where you have the instigation of the Passover. It was a feast of Jehovah. 
God's Passover has now degenerated into a Jewish feast. Oh, may I just say how easy it is to take some things that God has given to us, and because of usage and because of, oh, what shall I say, we make it a ceremonial thing without any substance. It's a mere empty ceremony, an empty day, and we forget the one who gave it to us. In other words, degeneration, spiritual degeneration, taking ceremonies that are empty. Instead of it being a feast of Jehovah, it's a Jewish, it's a Jewish feast. A Jewish Passover was at hand. And you remember that the uh, money changes were here in the temple of God. They were, there was cattle, there was sheep, there was doves, there was money, there was merchandise in the temple. Now, it's true, it's true that you could rationalize this by saying, well, uh, these folk were making religion easy. It was an accommodation. They were making it easy for people to, to worship the Lord. Instead of them running all over the country looking for a lamb to slay, you can get right here in the temple grounds. You come with your, with your money from Rome or from Greece, you can transform it into the, into the money of the temple. An accommodation. Yes, but my friend, it was a devitalized religion, and it, and it became a racket. It became a racket. In fact, the priests were so mad at Jesus for doing this because I'm sure they got a rake off on what was done in the temple grounds because the priests allowed this. The leaders of Israel allowed it. But I'm sure they had, they had a rake off. It became, as I say, a religious racket. I'm very sorry to say that, that we have the same thing today. It grieves my heart when I think that there are men today in America who use the gospel not primarily for the reaching of men for Christ, but because of building up a reputation or because of the, of the money end of it. May the Lord cleanse our hearts from any such thing. These people were uh, making religions easy for the people who came from afar. It was an accommodation. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord is against anything that makes merchandise of the things of God. Or shall I say, making merchandise of the people of God. I notice the Lord's energy. <laughs> uh, if I could paint, I'd sure like to paint that picture. Well, we read in verse 15, the Lord took a scourge of small cords. He made a whip and he drove them all out of the temple, drove the sheep out, drove the oxen out, and flung over the money changers' tables, and they see those money running all over the place, everybody, everybody diving for it. Then he said to those who had doves, I kind of like this, he drove out the sheep and he drove out the oxen, but he said to those who had doves, you let them free. Uh, the Lord here is cleansing his own temple. You know, the Lord has been here before. He was in Luke chapter 2. He went up there as a boy. And the possibility is that every year he went up to the temple. But now that he is starting his ministry in an official way, he identifies himself with his father's house. When he said, take these things away, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. 
Here our Lord came with the authority of his Father, and he drove out the defilers. And I repeat it again, he's against anything that makes merchandise of the people of God. You remember in the book of Jude, verse 11, Jude, by the way, is a book of the last days. Jude gives to us the doctrine and the life of the ecclesiastical leaders of the last days. And that 11th verse says they've gone the way of Cain. That means they're, they're teaching a gospel, a social gospel without sacrifice, that men need not come to the Savior who died for their sins. They're against the blood of Christ that was shed to cleanse men from sin. Uh, they have their own way of, of fitting people for the presence of God. It's the way of Cain. And then you have the went after the error of Balaam for reward. That means Balaam was a false prophet. Uh, Balaam was, was prophesying for money. He made merchandise of divine things. And I'm sorry to say that is true today. Not only in the cold, empty ceremonialism of the day or of churchianity today, it's true in evangelical circles where men will make merchandise of the people of God and the things of God. And then the third thing in that verse 11 of Jude, they despise the authority of the word of God. They've gone the way, or they've followed after the error of, uh, pardon me, they've gone in the gainsaying of Korah, which is the despising of the authority of the word of God as found in the book of Numbers. So again I say, the Lord Jesus manifested his zeal and it's his father's house, and he has a perfect right to cleanse his own house. And I want to again repeat it. Jesus Christ is against religious accommodation. Those who make religion easy. He devitalized religion. In fact, I can, I'm sure that when the Lord took the whip and cleansed his father's house, he chased these people out and chased out the, the oxen and the sheep and overthrew the tables of the money chambers, the terror of God was upon them. You know, I'm going to inject a verse here in case I may be speaking to some who have despised the gospel of the grace of God. Or maybe you're religious without Christ. I remind you of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, which says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And our Savior took the whip, and he cleansed his father's temple. And I repeat it, he has a right to cleanse his own house. And the terror of God was upon them. I would like to have seen that scene. There's a more terrible scene going to take place at the end of this age when the Lamb of God's going to come in his wrath. He's going to judge people, and I say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, as Hebrews chapter 12, the last verse says, our God is a consuming fire. And then may I suggest that we too, and I speak now of believers, uh, we are God's house. And I don't want to go into Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, which takes this up. Now from verses 18 to 22, you find our Lord manifesting his power. He not only demonstrated his authority by cleansing the temple, but he also makes known his power in verses Oh, 18 down to verse 22. The Jews said to Jesus, What sign showest thou to us? Where do you get your authority to do this thing? 
What right have you got to take a whip and, and chase everybody out of the temple? Chase out the oxen and the sheep and turn over these, these tables of money and let the doves free. Mark the answer of Jesus. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building. And by the way, uh, Herod was 46 years building that temple. It wasn't even finished in our Lord's day. And you're going to rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now they demanded a sign. What? Where do you get your authority? The cleansing gave rise to the question, where do you get your authority? They answered his challenge. They're not going to let this go by. They're not going to allow this Galilean to come in and take a whip and, and cleanse the temple of all its business. No, sir. He's destroying their racket. So they answered him, what right have you got to do this? Now, the answer is his death and resurrection. Of course, this they didn't understand. You remember, in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said, Mine hour is not yet come. That was his hour for the cross, as you have in John chapter 17 and in chapter 12. But in 2.19, he could say, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He has the resurrection in view. So in verse 4, you have the cross in view. In verse 19, you have his resurrection in view. And by the way, Jesus staked his whole mission and his person on the resurrection from the dead. The apostles' great basis for their authority was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you read the book of Acts through nearly 30 times in the book of Acts, the disciples speak of the resurrection. This is God's proof to the world as to the person of Jesus Christ. You take Acts chapter 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, buried, God hath raised up and exalted him to his own right hand. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, uh, he marked out Jesus Christ as his son by the resurrection from the dead. In Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised again because of our justification. And one could go down through the scriptures as just simply full. Well, you take, for example, Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Here he stands before the philosophical Athenians, and what does he preach? Jesus and the resurrection. What's the ground for their scorn and their scoff? Because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. He brings some strange things to our ears. He's talking about somebody who died and was raised again from the dead. What is Paul's answer? God has set apart a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. What I'm trying to get to your heart, my friend, is, do you want to know if Jesus is really the Christ, the Son of God? God's answer to you is the resurrection. God raised his Son from the dead and gave him glory that your faith 
and your hope might be in God. You see, unbelief seeks to destroy it. Hell seeks to ridicule it. My friend, it's true. Christianity would fall to the ground if we did not have a risen Christ. This Jesus, whom you took by wicked hands and crucified, said Peter, hath God exalted to be Lord and Christ, raised from the dead. Now then, may I just go on down and finish this, verses 23 to 25. You have not only his authority and his power, but now we have his knowledge, and here he manifests omniscience. And let me read it. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the Ephesians, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Here is his omniscience. He knew what was in man. And time would fail me to go into the Scriptures where you have the manifestation of, of his omniscience. Now notice, we read here that some believed, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus would not commit himself to them because he knew they were not genuine. You see, Jesus Christ himself was not the object of their faith, and he did not believe them. They followed him because of the spectacular, because of the miracles. He did not reveal himself to that which is not real. God always calls for reality. Many people are intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Christ, but they have no heart for him. There are many who are, who are ministers, preachers, church leaders. They know all about the Savior, but they have no heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, may I be very blunt and ask you the question, is Jesus Christ the object of your faith? Are we jealous for his house? Or is it just an intellectual persuasion you may have? You see, my heart is heavy because I find so many people, and I'm sure there are many listening in to me today. You've been professing Christians all your life. You've gone to church. You belong to the church. You've gone through ceremonies, and, and you call yourself a Christian. But what place does Jesus Christ have in your heart, in your life? Is yours an intellectual persuasion that it's true? Hasn't this persuasion brought you into a place where you must realize you must have a relationship to the Son of God if you're going to have life? Many followed him because of the spectacular. But Jesus would not commit himself because he knew they were not real. He knew that he was not the object of their love, of their affection, or even of their faith. And I find people today, they look for the spectacular. And my friend, please don't look for the spectacular. Get your eyes on the Savior. If you're occupied with the spectacular, you'll soon be disappointed because these things just, they're past, they pass with the using. They love to follow the Savior when it came to the question of miracles, power, the unusual, but they had no heart for him. What about you?
is Jesus, God's precious Son, the real object of your faith, of your heart's love and devotion. I just plead with your heart today, friend. God means business. And I'm repeating this over and over again. God really means business. The question is, do I mean business? Now may the Lord make it clear to you. His arms are outstretched to receive any and all who will come unto him. And now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. How much longer are some of you people going to keep the Lord waiting? He wants to save you. Why don't you accept it? And do it today for his name's sake. Death could not hold him. Now life has a goal. Jesus is coming. We all will be whole. The life that he gives us, so rich and so free, will go on forever, eternally. All praise to the Son. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.